Good to see you. If you're new here, my name is Joel. We have teaching from the Bible here at Emmanuel every week. We're going through the Apostles' Creed uh, this term, and we've just got to the third part of it today. So we're going to look at the virgin birth. We're actually jumping ahead. There'll be one or two pieces of the, the creed that we'll be coming back to in the next couple of weeks. We're changing the order slightly, uh, which means that we're kind of playing with fire because you don't mess with the Apostles' Creed. Uh, or your church might explode, so I'm, I'm hoping we get away with it, but I'm taking the risk because I wanted to uh, give one or two pieces of it to one or two uh, guests who are coming in to speak in the next month. So we're going straight in to what's actually one of the, the parts of the creed that's treated with the most scorn, uh, the virgin birth of Jesus. Many people through the centuries have treated this as that piece that, that you kind of take a little bit less seriously, um, much to, to the surprise, perhaps, of, 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 uh, other, of, of Christians all over the world. It's been, it's been the thing that people have found the most hard to accept in some cases. So I want to look, at, I want to look first of all today at whether it's real um, at all, and then look at whether it's important, and then look at how it, how it relates to our lives now, 20 centuries later. Um, so that's the plan. To do that, we're going to go straight to uh, Luke's account of the story, uh, which is in the, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. I'm going to read from verse 26 to verse 38. So uh, we're about um, three-quarters into the Bible, uh, third book of the New Testament, and first chapter of it from verse 26. It says this, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Can we just pray together first? Father, we thank you so much for the gift of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the kindness you've shown through him to us in our terrible need the provision of grace, the provision of forgiveness, the provision of destiny and hope. 
in our lives. And we thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit who you send to take what belongs to Jesus and to make it known. And we pray you would do just that now as we consider these words. We, we pray that they would be more than mere words, but that they would penetrate our hearts and bring life and bring transformation uh, for our joy and for your glory. We ask this for every single one of us here, that we would get to know you better. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. 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 So let's talk first about whether this is even real. A virgin birth, uh, it sounds ludicrous from the start. For, for, for some people, it's just too much too soon. No, 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 we can't take this slice of your religion seriously. In fact, the, the way it gets dismissed is often without a lot of thought. I think some people despise the miraculous in Christianity <laughs> based on the assumption that this book being written in a kind of pre-scientific age is riddled with all kinds of nonsense because the people who wrote it didn't understand that these things don't happen. So, so they didn't have modern medicine. They didn't have you know, modern anatomy. They didn't understand that virgins can't give birth to little boys. They just, they just thought this kind of thing happened, and so they, they wrote about it in their silly kind of semi-fictional books. They got carried away because they don't know, they don't realize. But if you stop and consider that objection, you, you realize how, how unfair, in fact, how kind of false and fatuous it is. Because you're trying to imagine that because we have a little bit more technological sophistication, and I'm not doubting, you know, we do, we do. We've, we've got, you know, space shuttles and smartphones and microwaves. We, we've done pretty well since the writing of this book. Certainly, we should give ourselves that. But those things don't mean that we are therefore wiser. We may be more scientifically knowledgeable, but that doesn't make us less naive. It doesn't mean that because these people were pre-scientific, they were massively gullible. And they just believed everything ever said without ever checking. Not at all. In fact, when you read the gospel of this, this very book, the book of Luke, written by this historian, you discover how careful he was, how, how carefully he got his, his, his material together, and, and uh, how specific and detailed he was in his coverage. He was a good historian, and the archaeologists have borne him out time and time again. The Bible was written by people who did scrutinize, who did look for the facts and not just the rumors. And we can be sure, for example, that they were just as shocked and confused by the claim of a virgin conception as you or I would be. We can know this because in Matthew's account of the virgin birth, which is told from Joseph's side of the story, that he actually was set to end the engagement. That he chose them when he found out she was pregnant to say, okay, we're, we're done. And he did it nicely and discreetly, but he was setting up to basically split from her because presumably they had the conversation, the awkward conversation where she said, I'm pregnant. And he said, ow. And she said, uh, the Holy Spirit. And he said, how do you know? And she said, an angel told me. And lo and behold, he wants a divorce, right? Because so, he's no more gullible or naive than you are. He, he is just as dubious about it. Now, it so happens he gets his own angelic visitation, and he, 
he, he, he pulls back from the edge and, and decides to go through. And, and it's, the story is, you know, the rest is history, as, as we know. But this, this, is the, this is the thing. We tend to assume that these ancients played the part of sort of village idiots when it came to compiling historical facts. No, they, they looked into this stuff. They wanted to be sure that they were reporting something real. Now, if there is a God, in fact, if the God of Christianity is there, then a virgin birth of the Messiah becomes way, way more feasible. Because, well, it's the sort of thing he might do, isn't it? That's miraculous. I can't have miracles. Well, well, if you've got a God who made the world, then of course you can. He's involved in his creation. He wants to be. And by the way, if you say, well, I don't believe in God, therefore I don't believe in miracles... Not even sure if that's true, because you've got to account for a universe coming from nothing. So you, you choose your miracle. Baby out of nothing, universe out of nothing, which is hardest to believe. No, listen, this, this thing fits if you, if you accept the prior claim that we looked at last week. I believe in God the Father, creator, maker of heaven and earth. But here's the thing, and I won't, I won't move on yet from the question whether it's real, because people also make the, I guess, the, the, the fair comment that there does seem to be a lot of Chinese whispers in religious history. Things do tend to get exaggerated and enlarged as they go from party to party. Could it be that, that everyone saw Jesus was a special guy, but they kind of went a little bit too far, got carried away and, and made myths up about his provenance because they really liked him and respected him. Now, this isn't all that far-fetched, sadly, because the, the, the story of the Christian church is that this has occasionally happened. In fact, some people have gone further and said not only did Mary conceive Jesus as a virgin, but she remained a virgin. She's a virgin now. She, she will always be Mary the pure virgin because, I suppose, of a reluctance in the very ancient part, times in the church in some quarters to, to accept even sexuality as a good thing in, in any way at all. And so Mary was kind of protected from that whole notion. You know, she, she's, oh, she's stayed a virgin. Now, the fact of the matter is the Bible itself teaches the opposite. It says in, in, in Matthew chapter 1 that Joseph did not know Mary, in other words, didn't, didn't have sexual union with her until Jesus was born. The word until is a clue, okay? They, they probably had sex later on. And in fact, more than probably, because in Mark chapter 3, you get reference to Jesus' siblings, so, so there must have been some, some physical uh, intercourse for that to happen. So Mary's definitely been exaggerated by, by chunks of the church. The Roman Catholic Church have kind of made this kind of big Mariolatry thing that's, that's, that's confused people and made people think, well, if, if it gets exaggerated there, then maybe the whole thing, the whole virgin birth is just a, a strange sort of exaggeration. It doesn't even fit with the rest of the Bible. Only Matthew and Luke refer to it people will say. It's only two writers that, that, that describe it, that, that mention it. So maybe, maybe they just, in, in, a, in a unique way, went a little too far. We can forgive them that, but let's not pretend that this thing matters. But yeah, hold, 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 hold on. Because actually, if you look at the other biographers of Jesus, Mark and John, you'll notice that that objection still doesn't really hold water. Mark and John don't refer to the virgin birth explicitly, that's true. But be fair, they don't refer to the birth of Jesus at all. 
Mark joins the story up when Jesus is an adult. John starts the story in eternity past, in the beginning was the word, and then he goes straight into some conversations Jesus has as a grown man with some fishermen. So both of them miss what we call the nativity. Having said that, interestingly, in both cases, you get references that imply that something was unique about Jesus' birth, making them very consistent with the explicit claims of Matthew and Luke. So in in Mark's gospel, for example, Jesus is referred to in Mark chapter 6 as the son of Mary, not the son of Mary and Joseph, certainly not the son of Joseph, the son of Mary, which in the culture would have been strange, very strange to be referred to by your maternal provenance, not by your dad. Everybody was the son of a father, son of a father, son of a father, but Jesus, son of Mary. Perhaps Mark is making some certainly vague, but nevertheless present reference to Jesus' unusual circumstances of birth. And then you get John's gospel, where in John chapter 8, Jesus is in an exchange with some of his opponents who are becoming fairly personal in their attacks on him. And they get to the point where they say to him, we were not born illegitimately. And that's their way of kind of, it seems, rubbing something in. They're making a snide comment. They're saying, yeah, we've heard about you, on the other hand. We weren't born illegitimately, but we, we don't know much about who your dad, your real dad was. We know about your mum. Which in the culture of the time might have been the way they would have attacked him, given the, 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 the understanding that she was conceiving him out of wedlock. This, this account of Jesus' virgin conception, therefore, kind of has at least sort of hints, even in the other Gospels that don't describe it explicitly. And then you get into Paul's writings in the New Testament. And Paul, who doesn't, again, explicitly state that Jesus was born of a virgin, when he does talk about Jesus' birth, he uses language that's a little bit unusual. He uses words that in the original language would not have been the obvious word to use about his birth. He uses words that describe an unusual coming into the world. In Romans chapter 1, in Galatians 4, in Philippians 2, he's kind of perhaps on the edge of of explaining this right up front, except he he doesn't need to. It's not the main part of what he's stating, but it's there in the back of his mind. Therefore, it's fair to say that the virgin birth doesn't sit on the edge of the Bible. It's not kind of just sprinkled on top. It's not a bolt-on, an afterthought. It's No, it's consistent with the, the, the kind of the grain of what the Bible teaches in terms of the historical events of Jesus' birth. But more than that, I want to say to you today that the virgin birth doesn't just fit in with the story and the way the story is told through the Bible. It fits in with the whole message that the Bible brings to us. It fits in powerfully with what the Bible is all about. And therefore, my friend, it fits in with your life today. Because the Bible was written for people like you and me so that we might get to know the God that we need. And the virgin birth is one of the key things it teaches us about how God has dealt with our need. And therefore, we need to learn about it today. So that's where we're going to go. We're going to look at the second point right now. Why is this important? Is, is it important in the first place? Is the virgin birth real? But also is the virgin birth important 
And I want to answer that by, well, first of all, considering with you the, the fact that for so many people, the problem that we have or have had with the virgin birth is that it kind of, it kind of stirs up a yuck factor for many people. It has done historically. When Christianity was first taught, people quickly despised it because a God was being presented through the Christian story who got involved in a, in a kind of a way that was considered by many distastefully over-familiar with material things, created things. You see, in the, in the ancient mindset, and to some extent in the modern one too, there's a tendency to divorce that which is sacred, spiritual, holy, divine, and that which is material, uh, physical, um, you know, profane, ordinary. And, and these two shouldn't really come into any contact anyway. But the idea that, that God himself would, would come into the world physically and become human, well, that, that's profane for a lot of people. And that the way he should do it is by inhabiting the womb of, of a young peasant girl. For many, it was just too much. Now, I, I'm not being facetious. I'm not, I'm not trying to... Uh, kind of shock you here. I've been at the birth of, of all five of my kids. And I, I, I suppose that for many of us, it's this concept of that, that is if, being there, you kind of see stuff that people would think God would not be involved in this. God would not want to be involved in this. This is all a little bit messy. And, and it has nothing to do with the divine. It has nothing to do with the spiritual, the more ethereal, the more conceptual and abstract and aesthetic and artistic and sensitive side of human experience. Because we have this thing. And, and I'm saying it happened in the ancient world big time. I mean, people got really upset and frankly still do in different ways. To some extent, it, it's kind of how many Muslims would feel offended by Christianity. Even though, ironically, the Quran teaches that Jesus was born of a virgin, but they would definitely not like the idea that God is Jesus' dad. Because that stirs up connotations that seem very offensive. But it's, it's, it's not an issue just for Muslim people. It's, it's actually an issue for a lot of Western people, a lot of, a lot of kind of intellectual, fairly well-educated, kind of middle-class elite types who will tend to live in places like Brighton, and listen to Radio 4 sometimes, and, and maybe even get on Radio 4 and get to express our position about things that are important and discuss matters of philosophy and, 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 and uh, issues of importance in our society and, and even issues of, of personal interest about where the soul goes and what the soul is and who we really are deep down. My friend, every time you ever hear a discussion that sounds a bit like that, you, you can bet a million that they're going to run a mile from any talk about the virgin birth. Because those things don't, don't fit. What people don't want to know about naturally is a God who comes into the world through a womb. That's just gross and seemingly unnecessary. Now, we don't need that. If we want to be spiritual, we will, we will stroke our beards and read poetry and drink wine and discuss it at great length. Thank you. We, we don't need this stuff with goop and blood and water bursting. and That's just not spiritual. I'm, I'm, I'm telling you, this is, a, this is a prime human reaction that we have because, A, 
no, let's put it like this. We, we imagine that God is kind of separate from creation, from real creation, that he, he doesn't want to be involved if he's there in creation in that way. But the, the God of the Bible actually is happy with the creation he made. From the very first page of the Bible, we get this description. God making the world stage by stage, and at each stage saying, it is good. <laughs> this God of the Bible is pro-creation. He's pro-matter. He likes matter. Matter matters to him. He's in favor of people. He's in favor of stuff. He's in favor of the stuff that you like. The things that you like, guess what? He might like it even more than you do. That's why he made it. He likes creation. He likes life. He likes babies. He likes embryos and fetuses. He likes humanity. He wants to uphold things because he's passionate about such things. And if that's a little bit too kind of you know, intense... <laughs> and intimate for the kind of God that we would prefer, then we need to catch up with perhaps the, the real God, who's very different than what we might imagine. No, he's pro-creation, for sure. But, but here's the thing. He's not just pro-creation, but he is way, way more aware than the average natural Brightonian in the street of the need, the need that we have. He's way more aware of how desperate our need is. The kind of religion that we would discuss and intellectualize, the kind of spirituality that we would prefer, it suits our perception of ourselves. It suits our perception of our need. What do we need? Well, not much. Not much at all. We're doing quite well. We are. We are doing really well in the 21st century. We haven't had a big war for a long time. Not a really big one. We've got modern medicine. We've got modern entertainment. In our pockets, literally. We've got comforts. We've got jobs that we can handle. We've got you know, minimum wage. We've got, we've got cities like Brighton, which are basically you know, just about three steps short of utopia. Just one or two more coffee houses, and we'll be there. It's just, it's just so, it's so perfect. And everything about life just seems, yeah, we, we're fine. We got it. We've mainly got it sorted. So much progress. We have so much convenience, so many comforts. We have holidays in really cool places. And we, we, we're kind of satisfied. We have none, none of the horrible inconveniences of the lives of the people in this book. We're centuries from them. Everything about our lives is so much better. And so what do we need? Well, the God of the Bible seems to look at us very differently. He sees us as people in such desperate need. Such desperate need that his measures, his methods, his means of reaching the need shock us. In fact, they, they kind of turn us off. They make us want to throw up some of them. There's whole chunks of the Bible about animal sacrifices, about priests and blood. And, and we just think, Ugh, don't give me, give, me a God, give me the kind of God I imagine, the kind of mixture of Steve Jobs and Morgan Freeman. That's the kind of God I want. 
God that fits with how I think the world should be. Kind of just, just kind of wise and, you know, in control and Apple Mac and everything's just kind of, mm, you know, just om, just, you know, everything is just, 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 just a little, one or two steps up from where I am now. God seems to see our problem as so serious that he was prepared to inhabit a womb. We, we maybe need to face some reality and see things perhaps a little differently than we had done. See, the, the first thing that makes me see the importance of the virgin birth is, as I say, the, the fact that God is procreation. But the second thing is the fact that Mankind's story is a story of failure. The failure of the first man. The failure of the first man. And what I mean by this is that we, we, we are part of the human race. We're part of a family tree. We are very good at seeing ourselves as individuals. We're really good at seeing ourselves as individual pebbles on a beach. You can take them home if you like, polish them separately, keep them from all the others. The Bible does not see us like that. The Bible sees us more like leaves on a tree, not pebbles on a beach. We are joined organically with a whole race. We're joined as one human, humankind, and represented by a prime human, a prior human, the original human. And the story of the original human is that faced with all of God's goodness and bounty and kindness, all of God's creation, given him to rule over on God's behalf, he instead chose to declare independence. He chose to, to Brexit from God, if you like. He decided to say, this is mine. I will rule me and I will rule all this for me. It is not about you. I, I resist you. And he was deceived, to be sure, but so deceived that he plunged himself and his family tree into ruin with him. And that means you and me. Yeah, that means you and me. Centuries and millennia later, that's our legacy as well. Because you, you can't just ruin your own life. You could if we were just individual pebbles, but no one ever is. You ruin your life, you ruin a few others with you. You, you take your kids with you. You take your kids' kids with you. And if you're the father of the human race, you're taking the human race with you. That's what he did. It's interesting that Luke talks about this man just a page later or two in his gospel. At the end of chapter 3, he gives the genealogy of Jesus. There's a couple of genealogies of Jesus in the New Testament. It's interesting trying to see how they fit together. But they're the lists of names. You know, the list of names that depress people and make them give up on their Bibles. So-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat. And it's always the son of, the son of, the son of, the son of. And all these names, some of them very hard to pronounce. The son of this, the son of that. And it traces right back. The son of this, the son of this one, the son of this one. This, until it gets to the first man where it says at the very end of Luke chapter 3, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. The son of God. I wonder if Luke is deliberately finishing chapter 3 or coming into the next part of the story, having made this point, there was another son of God. There was a first one. There was an Adam. There was someone who came into the world differently. He wasn't born the normal way. He didn't have a, a human father. 
He was brought in by God's divine will. That's how he was born. That's how he's the son of God. Adam is not the son of God in the same way that Jesus is the son of God. So part that to one side. But the idea is nevertheless that Adam, just like Jesus, is the representative of the human race. He is humanity 1.0. And what humanity 1.0 has done is rebel and bring disaster on the whole universe. That's it. A friend of mine is Australian. He, he, he puts it like this. He says, a, a, a man and his family tree, just a few generations back, got in trouble with the law for whatever it was in those days, you know, stealing a pig or something, very, probably very light, but he got sent off in chains to Australia. And because of what he did, not only did he get sent to the far side of the globe, but so did everybody in him, in his family, in his future, in his loins, if you like, including my friend. Because of something that was done centuries before, generations before, he grew up in a different world. And my friend, you and I, yeah, with our fridges and microwaves and, and Netflix and holidays and, and, and all the rest, with our degrees and our, and our options and our relationships and our, our Tinder and all the things that make life so, so easy and comfortable and full of choices, we're still in Adam. We, we might feel independent, but we're, we're independent in Adam. We might feel free, but friends, if we're an Adam, we're far from where we're meant to be. Because you and I, we weren't made to be pebbles. We weren't made to just be randomly going through life, wondering what it's even for. Wondering what will make us happy. Chasing things to give us a certain sense of satisfaction. Isn't this what it's like for you? Yeah? Isn't it? I mean, tell, be honest with yourself. How's it going? You, you finding that you're con constantly content with life all the time? That there's never a sense inwardly of a gnawing gap? That you can't feel that you feel a profound sense of dissatisfaction? And you sense deep down, I was made for something bigger than me. I can't find what it is. And I long for it to be fed, this, this, this hole in me. I long to know what I'm here for. Some of you, you've been thinking that this very week. I don't even know what I'm here for. I don't even know what it's all about. And it's, it's not just a, a nice philosophical problem to discuss at two in the morning, the closing time. It becomes a reason you can't get to sleep that night and the night after. And, and what happens is you start to choose the options that you think, well, this, maybe this will fill the gap. And you try everything. Try everything from entertainment to distraction to stuff that you know could be a little dangerous, could hurt other people. But I've got to deal with this. I've got to find some, some sense of meaning in the world. And perhaps the stuff we get involved with in the end just makes the problem so much worse because it leads us to feel a sense of guilt and a sense of shame. And all it does is underlines the fact there's something completely wrong. Yeah, we... We have 20 centuries of progress on these people. Yeah, we, with our medicine, with our therapy, with our transport, with our ease. But I tell you, my friend, nothing much has really changed. 
We're still the same desperate, needy people. Why? Because we're in Adam. We're lost. We're broken. We've been plunged into sin and guilt and shame. And one day, each one of us, pebbles or leaves, however we see it, we will have to stand at the end of our lives in judgment. And we, who've spent our lives doing so well as judges, right? I love judging, like I was saying last week. We do that. But it won't be our finger pointing. It will be suddenly us on the end of the finger. It will be us having to realize, I have to give an account for my life. I never even knew what it was for. I, I lived as if God didn't matter. We are in such a dark place. The Bible says that the people who walk in darkness in a land of deep darkness. And that's describing our condition. A land of deep darkness. However distracted and numbed we are by our entertainment, no, the Bible knows what it's talking about. The soul is in darkness. We need we need. Someone to deal with the ruin and the failure of the first man. Begins to show the necessity, doesn't it, of the virgin birth. Just helps us to start seeing what we need. And let me say, just as a quick thing as well, the third reason the virgin birth is important, and there are many I could say, I'm just giving you four today. The third that strikes me is that it fulfills a prediction given to the first woman. There's the failure of the first man, but the Bible's description of, of what happened at that very point is that God comes and delivers a promise, not to the man, but to the woman, to his wife. God says to Eve, the one who actually helped Adam to fail, she, she led him into the, the mistake, into the deception and the failure of sin. But even so, God, in amazing kindness, turns to Eve. And promises her a future hope. In fact, promises her a kind of recompense, a kind of revenge. Because he says, from you will come a conqueror. Your seed will crush the head of the serpent. There will be someone born from woman, he says, with his back to the man, as it were. <laughs> Just facing the woman. Someone will be born of woman who will crush the head of evil. The deceiver will be destroyed. My creation will be restored and this relationship will be better than mended. Because I will bring a deliverer into the world. And he will crush the serpent's head, although he will bruise his heel. He will get hurt. His heel, literally, will get hurt. Something will happen to the deliverer. Even there in Genesis 3.15, the very first bit of the Bible is describing the cross of Jesus Christ and describing how he would come into the world, particularly unusual birth perhaps. And then final reason I want to give to you for the importance is this shows how God chose to intervene. God's intervention is the virgin birth. It had to be. There was, there was no way. <laughs> there was no way that humankind could just better itself. There's no way that our humanity, our religion, our, our, our self-help, our advertising, our courses, our, 
our education, whatever, us, our, our best, our charities, our, our attempts to deconstruct, our social justice, everything that we do to try and better the world, everything that we do to improve the world. In the end, friends, it could get us nowhere because it was all us trying to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. It can't be done. The only deliverer had to be one from outside. Someone coming from outside of our brokenness. Someone unbroken. Someone unruined. Someone holy. And that's what the angel says to Mary. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy. The Son of God. Humanity 2.0. That's the virgin birth. It's God bringing the second Adam. One of my favorite hymns is by a man called John Henry Newman. It's got a verse in it. It says this, O loving wisdom of our God, when all was sin and shame, a second Adam to the fight and to the rescue came. That's the virgin birth. God, God saying, I see you in your need. I see that you've hurt me. I see that you've stabbed at me you've lashed out at me you've rejected me like a child rejecting its parent what 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 does God do in return God stoops down to us in our need becomes one of us and does what we couldn't do lives the life we couldn't for us and for our salvation he came into the world born of a virgin conceived by the Holy Spirit to live as this, this holy one, so different than we've lived. And it, it had to be that he was both human and divine at the same time. It had to be that he was born of a woman and yet born from above. Because this is the only salvation we could have. Anything other than that wouldn't work. Imagine a bridge that looks perfect crossing a huge canyon. And you walk across it and then you realize it's not long enough. There's 20 feet left. That's what human religion is like. You can walk quite a long way, but you don't, you don't get to the end. The best that humanity can do is never going to reach God. But imagine another bridge that looks amazing as it comes out towards you all the distance, all the way. And then there's another gap, but it's a gap at this end. And you're just love staring at it. You think, oh, that's a good bridge, but I can't use it. That would be the religion where God came into the world but didn't become a man. Never became human, never shared our suffering, never shared our sorrow, never felt what we feel, never felt our sin and our shame, never took our guilt on the cross, just watched us in our plight. The God of the Bible is God and man in Christ. He's the full bridge. And this, this, is, this is why it's so glorious. This is why it's so mysterious as well. So Paul, Paul writes later on in the New Testament, 1 Timothy 3.16, he says, Great is the mystery of godliness. And he talks about, in a few verses, describing how God became man, came into the world. And frankly, friends, for the next three, four, five, six centuries of the church, a lot of people had to really suss out how this happened. How did it happen? How did God become human? How was there a man who was both human and both divine? And there were some huge discussions, huge debates, huge fights, involving people with very long beards and very hard-to-pronounce names. And, and they tried their best to put it together because they needed to put it together. Because we need to understand, how could it be? They'd say, okay, so we're talking about someone who's God and man. So presumably it's two persons. No, 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 no. It's one person. All right, one person, God and man. So one nature, 
human and divine just blended? No, 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 two natures, very important, two distinct natures, human and divine. Oh, okay, so one person with two natures, um, and, uh, and, and does that mean that the two natures are blended, sort of 50-50? No, no, 100% man. Oh, so not God then. No, yes, 100% God. So 100% God and 100% man. How, this sounds a little bit mysterious. Yes, indeed, great is the mystery of godliness. That's why that verse is in the Bible. It is a mystery. It's phenomenal. It's mind-blowing. It's, it's actually, when you look at it, it starts to make sense. If you study it like these genius theologians did, you start to see how it works. But it is, it is mysterious. It does blow the mind that God should become man. But this is what he's like. This is what he does. Because, because of his desire, his longing to rescue us. And because of the nature of our desperate need. Only, only the birth of Jesus could do this. Only the virgin birth could make it possible. God has done what seemed impossible for us. And this changes everything for me and you, right? Because it shows not just, and hear me on this, God's willingness to handle what you can't handle, to do for you what you can't do, to deal with the stuff you can't deal with. The stuff in your past, right? The stuff that you feel ashamed of. The stuff that you, you, you think, how am I going to, how's anyone going to deal with this in my life? I can't, I can't fix me. And you're right, you can't fix you. You can't. You can improve you, fair enough, but on what scale? You don't need a bit of self-improvement. You need a savior. You need Jesus. And he's come to do what you couldn't do. Live the life you couldn't live. Die the death that you deserve, that we all deserve. Buried in the tomb. In that dark, empty, unused tomb, as Luke points out in Luke 23. It's interesting to me. Unused tomb. Not been in before. Reminds me of Luke chapter 1. A womb. Not been in before. God was beginning something. God was recreating. the universe. God was starting from nothing. All over again, just like last week, God restored creation by starting all over again. God's able to show up in your life and do what you might be giving up on yourself entirely. You might be a student and you might be already thinking, I don't know what I'm going to do this year. I don't know what my plans are. You might be quite unsure of yourself. Or maybe you're very self-confident, but trust me, within a few months you'll see some areas of need and weakness. Whatever stage of life you happen to be at. Whatever age of life you happen to be at, whether you're involved in, in, in church life, whether you have, a, have any kind of faith whatsoever, whatever situation in which you find yourself, you're going to face points in life where you know your desperate need. And those are opportunities, my friend, to be like Mary, to say, God, let it be to me according to your word. I trust you. I have not got the resources. I can't do this, but you can have you noticed when you read the Bible, the number of times, the sheer number of times when God chooses to use a man or a woman to do something completely impossible for them? If you read the Bible, you'll know what I mean. He will choose people who, who, who you think, why would you choose this guy to do that? The weakest one, the most unimpressive, the one who looks most despised, most unlikely to get results. The, the, the one that couldn't possibly have a child. You know, in, in, in 
Elizabeth's case, because she was old and barren. In Sarah's case, she was old and, and barren. In Rebecca's case, because she was barren. She was young, but couldn't, couldn't have children nevertheless. In Rachel's case, so many of the women. Hannah, all these extraordinary, so many times in the Bible. God starts with the one who couldn't have children. Not the one that's having loads, but the one that's got no hope in themselves. One that's given up on themselves. I can't do this. It's too much for me. God says, that's just what I need. Someone who knows it's too much for them. Maybe you've got to that stage in your life. Maybe you're at a point where you're just seeing things that you want to do with your life for God. <laughs> but you're wondering if it's already game over. You're wondering, well, just, I've just quit. It's just it's too much for me. I cannot do this. I had a plan. I cannot do this. Whatever. Maybe it's in your job. Maybe it's in, in, maybe it's in your studies. Maybe it's in your family. Maybe you're a mum or a dad and you're looking at your kids and thinking, I don't know how to raise them. I don't know how to bring them up to know Jesus. I, don't, I cannot do it. I cannot do this. Good. Good. It's good that you know you can't do it. Because we trust in a God, the God of the virgin birth. The God who shows up in our emptiness and brings forth life. It's what he does. It's what he's so good at. And what do we do? What's our part? We trust him. We believe him. We do what Mary did. Let it be to me according to your word. It's hard to believe sometimes. Yeah, virgin birth, they say it's hard to believe in. But I believe it. I choose to believe it. Because I know too much about this God to despise it and dismiss it. This is the way he's saving the universe. Of course, he can get involved in my situation. Of course, he can bring life through. Of course, he can answer my prayers. Of course, he can. That's the kind of God he's proved himself to be. We're going to stand in a moment and just recite again this Apostles' Creed because it's our way of doing what Mary did. It's our way of saying, this isn't just out there, this is in here. I believe it. I choose to believe it. But when we do it, I want you to know this is for you if you're, if you're ready to say it. If you're thinking, oh, oh, do I have to say it? Are you going to let me out if I don't say it? It's fine, okay? This is, this is for you if you know this is what you believe. If you're thinking, I'm not sure yet, I'd like to investigate it more, we're just thrilled you're here, and please be completely honest, all right? Just, just let this pass by and ignore it. You can stay seated if you prefer, but whatever you do, consider the claims of this creed as we recite it together in just a moment. Perhaps the musicians could come and join me. We could start to play. We'll stand in a moment. Let me just say one other thing quickly, which is worth just touching on again. We'll say this every week, I guess. When we mention the fact that we believe in the Catholic Church, it's, the word Catholic literally means united global church okay so it doesn't it's not only referring to the roman catholic church okay and some of us would think oh is that is, is this a roman catholic church no uh, we've got many friends in the roman catholic church for sure and many brothers and sisters but but the the creed is referring to the more broad meaning of the church in general let's stand together and let's let's recite these words as they come up on the screen. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. On the third day he rose again, he ascended into heaven. 
He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Amen.